All right. Hey, today we get to close the Joseph series, um, and I uh, am on cloud nine. I'm on Pastor Cloud Nine, and the reason is uh, I've been at the GLS this week, and man, uh, I've been just being fed with leadership jet fuel. I mean, it's been unbelievable. I want to say thank you to those of you who served or attended from NBC. Great event. Yeah, clap by all means. Remember, if you're new here too, by the way, when you clap, mean it. It's in the golf tournament. It's church. You can clap, be boisterous, uh, and, and be grateful for uh, how God's blessing our church. Um, and at, at, that, at that summit, you have these world-class leaders, and in every single case, there were these stories of perseverance through all sorts of obstacles from uh, Craig Rochelle, who is the pastor of the largest church in the country, runs the summit. Has, his church has started the modern-day multi-site movement, the Version Bible app that we use here in our church. They started, and uh, more than a billion downloads um, of that. And he was told when he was in seminary that he was unfit for ministry <laughs> uh, and, and went off and, and, and believed in God's call in his life and, and started a church anyway and, and did great things. We heard uh, from a gal who had started a, a makeup company, and she was trying to help ordinary women who had skin conditions and things like that, like she did. She was a news anchor and would break out in these, these skin conditions under, under pressure and stuff and under light. And so she went to go do it, and she, had, she, was, she was a little heavier than maybe the, the, the people would like that are in that business. And they told her, nobody's going to buy makeup from somebody who looks like you. I mean, just brutal, you know? And I, I started thinking about and of course, she then goes on that becomes the, the largest single makeup brand in the country, more than she sells it to L'Oreal for $1.2 billion, right? I mean, you just kind of look at all of the different ways that God moves in the lives of people. Now, go back to our good man, Joseph, right? Joseph, he's not even the firstborn. He happens to be dad's favorite, though, so he has that on his side. Uh, he's given the special jacket. He brags to his brothers about it. He has a dream that God gives him that his brothers one day will bow down to him. He tells his brothers about it. They don't care for that. So they beat him up, throw him in a pit, strip him down of his jacket, and sell him into slavery. It escalates quickly, right? They, they send him off to the Midianite slave traders who then sell him to Egypt. He ends up as a slave for Potiphar, high-ranking official in the Egyptian military. Potiphar's wife likes Joseph, wants to sleep with him. Joseph refuses so she frames him uh, for sexual assault, basically, and he ends up going to jail for years where he's rotting away. But all the while, the dream that God gives him is still there. He ends up interpreting some dreams for some cu couple of guys in cell block B or whatever, and they end up going back to the right hand of Pharaoh. Pharaoh has a dream, can't get any interpretation, and they say, hey, I knew this guy in prison, and he's good at interpreting dreams. So Joseph gets a hearing with Pharaoh. And next thing you know, Joseph is second in all of Egypt, which is by far the most powerful country in the world at the time. He's number two, and there's a famine in the land, and he controls the food supply, and here come his brothers. Oh, baby. Oh, are you hungry? That's what I would say. Oh, I'm sorry. Is that, <laughs> what's that noise I hear? Is that your stomach growling? <laughs> I, I might have said something like that if I was in his shoes, but he's bigger than that. He knows what God is doing in his life, and he can see the hand of God in using his pain prior to move him into a position where he could save the life of his punk brothers and his dad and all the people of Israel and keep them from starving to death. So instead of lashing out or seeking vengeance, and we've been talking about reconciliation for the last couple of weeks, he makes the decision to forgive and reconcile. It's not our favorite sport. He does it anyway. It's consistent with what God is asking him to do. And so it seems like no matter how up or down his life has been, you know, pit to the palace to the prison to the palace and like a, like a, like a weird ping pong ball, he's just bouncing around the trajectory of his life. It keeps moving, though, toward what God wants for his life. He doesn't lose sight of that dream. And so this last sermon, you might just say, is about this. Never stop dreaming. Don't stop dreaming. It doesn't matter what your circumstances look like today. Okay? If, even if you're in the pit today, you might be able to look back and see a time when you had it worse. And if not, don't take this the wrong way, but it might get worse from here. Put that on a Hallmark card, huh? <laughs> <laughs> However bad you're feeling, it could, it's probably going to be worse at some point. 
um, that that could happen, right? And if you're on cloud nine today, you may not be tomorrow. But that's the story of Joseph is about radical faithfulness, about a commitment to walking in the dream that God had given him and not being faithful to God conditionally, but learning to love God the way that God loves Joseph, unconditionally, right? So whether, whether he's in the palace or the prison or the pit or the palace or wherever he ends up, his life is about the same thing. He doesn't change with his circumstances. And so in some ways it's a rebuke to, to my life and to the lives of many of us who, who tend to trust God up until the point it feels like we can't trust him. We're like a, a kid who's being taught to dive for the first time. And the parent takes him out to the edge of the diving board and says, all right, you say when, and I'll let you go. I don't, I don't trust you. What do you think? I mean, they like, want you to die or something? It's going to be fine, you know, but you still don't believe him anyway. You don't understand that the parent has been diving forever. They have an intimate knowledge of diving. They have the strength to pull you back if they want. You're just terrified. And so in the moment, that's all you see. My life isn't going well. The end. Therefore, maybe God's not faithful. Therefore, maybe God isn't as powerful as he claims to be. See, Joseph's story says, no, that's actually at the moment in which God is about to show himself. So if, like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, or at the very beginning of the series, about people who walk out of movies, oh, I was bored. So I, I left 15 minutes in, and they missed the whole story because they thought they left thinking the Karate Kid was depressing because they left 20 minutes in. They left Rocky thinking that, oh, man, poor guy, they're suffering in, in the streets of Philly. His life's over. Because, and, and then we take that approach to life in general. My friend is suffering right now. Well, God's not really moving in their life. Or if I walk up to you and I say, how do you see God moving in your life? It's normal to not necessarily know at the moment. I don't know right now. But there's a difference between I, he's not, I don't know right now, and I don't know, and I don't think I ever will. Those are different. Joseph here adds this uh, amazing story and the, the activity of God in his life uh, and the difficulties and the faithfulness that go with that reminds me, don't let difficulty kill God's dream for your life. See, it could have happened to Joseph. could have happened a lot, actually. Different times when the dream could have died. But he never forgot the dream that God gave him, and he kept walking in it. He kept living in it. And it may be that, you've got, that God has something very specific for you. At the very least, here's what it looks like. You and I are supposed to walk daily in obedience, following in the footsteps of his son and taking on the likeness of his son until we get to our final destiny, which is with him eternally. Okay, so that, that dream that is given there is what we walk in on a daily basis. So I want to go back now. We're going to finish the story. Remember, Jacob, his brothers, Joseph, they're all living together now. Everybody happy, happy. Everybody's reconciled. Everybody's, uh, you know, hugging each other and weeping. But Jacob's getting old. And Jacob knows he's about to die. So these death speeches are common in Scripture. Jacob pulls Joseph in. He pulls Joseph's two sons in, so his grandkids, Manasseh and Ephraim. And he says, hey, come here. And he goes to bless Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he, puts his head, he starts to bless Ephraim. And Joseph says, no, Dad, it's, it's Manasseh that's the oldest. He goes, I know my kids, my grandkids. For goodness sake, Joseph, I want to bless Ephraim. Manasseh is going to be good too, but Ephraim particularly. I want to bless him. So he blesses Ephraim. And then he tells Joseph, he says, I don't want to die here or I will die here, I don't want to be buried here. Promise me you won't bury me here. I want to be buried in Abraham's tomb. Now, you Bible nerds, who's Abraham 
to Jacob. Jacob's dad was who? Isaac. Who was Isaac's dad? Abraham. So you don't even have to be from the south to figure this out. That's his grandfather, all right? And he says, I want to go be buried with my gran in my grandfather's tomb. Abraham had been promised that God was going to take them into a land of their own. Now, as this is going on, right, this famine has been developing. Joseph, Joseph is still there. He's working with the food, and he starts doing something because basically the Israelites are starving to death still. And so unless you're Jacob and his sons, the other people are not faring so hot. And they come to Joseph, and Joseph basically, uh, they say, hey, we'll do anything for food, the people do. Uh, we'll give you our land, and we'll become your slaves. And Joseph says, hey, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take the land from Pharaoh. You continue to farm it. You continue to work it. Pharaoh gets 20%. So he basically turns them into sharecroppers. Okay, we'll take the land and all this. We'll feed you. We'll take care of you. You kick 20% to Pharaoh. And just one by one, all the land in Israel starts being handed over to Egypt. This begins to set the table for the oppression of Israel under a future Pharaoh hundreds of years later. Because they get all the land and all the, all the Israelites become technically the slaves of Pharaoh. All right, so all of this is happening. Jacob then says, I'm going to die. Don't bury me here. And so they do the bit with much fanfare. They take Jacob and they, they have this big processional. He gets Pharaoh's thing and Pharaoh says, you know what? Everybody mourns 70 days. And then they go put on a seven-day-long funeral. I've been to some long funerals that never gone seven days. They felt like seven days, but they never went seven days. And they give them this huge caravan, this huge blessing, big, uh, flashy deal. And then after it's done, Joseph's brothers, of course, not to be selfish or anything, their immediate concern is, well, now Joseph's going to kill us now. Now the dad's out of the way. We have nobody to protect us. And so they come up with this lie that basically says, hey, Joseph, you know, you may not have heard this, but before he died, dad told us to tell you not to kill us when he died. <laughs> I mean, it's a really, they're just weasels, man, from beginning to end, just total weasels. And of course, Joseph's right there with Jacob. You'd think Jacob would have told him if that was an actual concern. He doesn't. Here's what Joseph says to his brothers. Genesis 50, 19 to 21. Don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Oh, boy, here he goes at it again, making me feel bad. Forgiveness is for us, folks. We're supposed to do that part. Judgment stays with God. That's what he says. He says, am I God that I should put you guys to death? And it says he reassures them by speaking kindly to them. So he doesn't just choke it down. He actually goes the extra mile and talks kindly to them. I'm going to take care of you guys. God will take care of whatever needs to be taken care of. In that regard, I'm going to care for you. I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to provide for you and your families. So as if he hadn't forgiven them enough, now they come to him with this lie about what Jacob told them. Dad told us to tell you not to hurt us. That was his dying wish. That's, that's how they, they, they do it, right? And it's like, you know, he goes, what am I, God? I'm not supposed to do that. That's God's job. I'm going to provide for you guys, even though dad's gone. So when it comes down to it, I mean, that tends to be a pretty consistent biblical theme. See, forgiveness doesn't mean that God will never deal with it at any point in time. What it's saying is that it's God's job to do vengeance. Our job is forgiveness. He's the judge. So in the New Testament, it becomes, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So part of trusting God is also trusting him with the justice, quote unquote, part of the equation. The reason that we struggle so mightily to be just is because we're not just, which is why we have a hard time creating a just world. We're just not just. We're self-interested. We... Uh, tend to aggrandize our own virtues and the faults of our neighbor. 
We tend to forget how much we've been forgiven in the past. We tend to have agendas, all of that. And that's why God says, no, I have forgiven you much, so therefore you forgive just as in Christ I forgave you. And so here's Joseph again. Even at the end of his life, Jacob's out of the picture. Everyone out there is hungry, and he chooses to help his brothers. He could have said, you know what, hey, guys, I'd love to continue to help you, but look, everybody's hungry, so here's number 437. Take a number, uh, you get to the back of the line, and I'll get you them, but he doesn't. He continues to overcome evil with good. Forgiveness, sisters and brothers, is for all seasons, not just when you don't have another option. Joseph has a choice. He has the military of Egypt at his disposal. He has a situation where they are completely and utterly vulnerable. Every opportunity in the world to teach him a lesson, in air quotes, he doesn't. He chooses to forgive anyway. Forgiveness is for all seasons, not just when we don't have another option. And I would make the case biblically that it is especially powerful when vengeance is ours. And we really have it in our right hand. We could totally serve it up fresh and warm. That's the moment at which forgiveness means something the most and testifies to our own character. Do we forgive when we actually have the power? Or do we only say, hey, you ought to forgive, or hey, I'll forgive you because that's all I can do. I have no power. Joseph has it all. And then Joseph gets old. And this is where the story gets really interesting. So Joseph, the ripe old age of 110, says this in Genesis 50, 24 to 26. Pay close attention here. Soon I will die, Joseph told his brothers, but God will surely come to help you and lead you out of this land of Egypt. He will bring you back to the land he solemnly promised to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath, and he said, when God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. What? When God comes to help you and lead you back, you must take my bones with you. So Joseph died at the age of 110. The Egyptians embalmed him, and his body was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Now, did you get what he asked there? He says, there's going to come a time when God is going to give you guys the land that he promised to Abraham. And when that moment comes, dig me up because I don't want to be buried here. So similar to Jacob. Jacob didn't want to be buried there either. And he says, dig me up and take me with you. And when you get there, that's where I want to be buried. We can trust God-given vision. If God declares that it's supposed to happen, if God says it shall be so, then it will be so. Now, here's Joseph. Keep in mind how, how strange this must seem. At the moment Joseph dies, now there's no buffer between Pharaoh and the Israelites. Joseph was the kind ruler who actually was a Hebrew himself, had been a slave himself. And now he's there meeting out food and everything. Now he's gone out of the picture. All land, except Jacob's, is now in the hands of Pharaoh. Every human being that was an Israelite, that was not named Jacob or one of his sons or one of their kids, is a slave to Pharaoh. So what land? And how exactly that's going to happen when everybody's a slave, we have no land, and Joseph says, oh, no, no, there will be a land. Because God told Abraham, my great-grandfather. See, I'm not even from the south, and I can figure that one out too. God told my great-grandfather that he was going to make his descendants like the sands of the seashore, and that he was going to bring us into a good land, a good land flowing with milk and honey, and that we were going to enter there someday. And so when it happens, I want you guys to take me. When you guys leave Egypt, you guys are going to be slaves. When you leave, dig me up and take me with you. That's kind of awesome, really. In fact, he's commended for this in the New Testament. In Hebrews eleven twenty-two, it says this in the great Hall of Fame of Faith chapter. It was by faith that Joseph, when he was about to die, said confidently that the people of Israel would leave Egypt. He even commanded them to take his bones with him when they left. When God closes something, it can't be opened. When he opens something, it can't be closed. And if God says 
that this will come to pass, it will come to pass. Right? Even if, in this case, Joseph's case, there is no rational reason to believe it. We have no land. We have no freedom. We have no military. We have no food. And you're here talking about the promised land. How's that going to happen exactly? And all Joseph says is, when? When is the word of faith? If is the language of doubt. When? You want something that will change your life? Start using when more often. When this happens. When God leads me here. When God helps me reconcile. When God grants me this victory. When this happens, okay? Now, it doesn't mean, it has to be a God-given vision, not a self-made, self-aggrandizing thing. But these things that God has promised us in Scripture, we walk in those. We don't walk in doubts. We walk in those. We, we, we walk in the promises of God. And so, sure enough, Joseph is buried there in Egypt 400 years later. 400 years later. Some of us gripe about, you know, not getting our prayers answered between Tuesday and Thursday. 400 years later, they are enslaved in Egypt because it says there's a Pharaoh. This is how the book of Exodus opens. There is a Pharaoh that arose that knew not Joseph and what he had done. And he looks around and he says, these people are many. These Hebrews, they're fertile. There are tons of them. Someday they're going to align with my enemies and overthrow me. So i got to oppress them. And so he comes in and he starts pressuring and oppressing harshly, more harshly than any Pharaoh before or after. And God raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses. And on the day after the ten plagues happen, and on the great day when God delivers his people out of Egypt, Moses says this. Somebody go dig up Joseph, please, before we go. Why didn't he forget the promise? That thing had been passed generation after generation after generation. Somebody get Joseph. So somebody goes out there, and then I found myself going, what do they do, like put him in a backpack? Like, like what, what do they do with his bones? Because he goes on a wild trip with them at that point. They pick up Joseph's bones with them, and they start traveling with them wherever they go. So for the 40 years in the wilderness with Moses, they've got Joseph. They've got his remains with them. And guess what? Uh, Moses dies. Now what? We're still not in the promised land. And here's Joseph. Now we got Joseph's bones, and we're still not in the promised land. And Joshua takes the bones, and the wall falls flat, and Israel goes into the land finally. And Joshua, they divvy up land to everybody. And he says, you know what? Let's bury Joseph. Way later. I mean, you're talking like almost 500 years later. Now Joseph is buried there at Shechem, which becomes the first capital of Israel when they're in the promised land. And God's promise is fulfilled yet again. Dude, think about that. Just as God promised, just as Joseph prophesied, it was finished. Think about all the opportunities had, uh, Joseph had to doubt God's promises. Think of the hundreds of years in between that the Israelites could have said, you know what, if he really loved us, where is he now? And yet they keep believing. Now, they have, it's not that it's without struggle. Those of you who have read that story know that. But yet, God's vision came to pass. And what that means is, the way a speaker at GLS put it was this way. I like this. The way is through, not out. When you face difficulty, the answer is through, not out. Joseph's life is one of faithfulness, not nonstop ascent. I have yet to ever meet a person who walked with the Lord for any length of time, who says, yep, on the day that I came out of the water, my life was one big rocket ride of joy from that moment forward. That has never happened. 
And in many cases, it gets harder. And the reason it gets harder is because when you weren't walking with the Lord, you were irrelevant to the evil one. He already had you captive. So as God sets you free, just like Pharaoh's chariots would chase down the Israelites after they left, here he comes on your heels. And so now all of a sudden you're having problems you never had before. You know, you're, 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 you're struggling with things because he's now got his eye on you, right? Well, who wants that? I'd rather be irrelevant for a while. And then if I can figure out when Jesus is going to come again, then, I'll, then I'll, I'll jump in right at the end and then, uh, you know, kind of take off and figure, oh, no, 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 no. The vision God has for your life is there. That's where it begins. And the vision, by the way, is not a pain-free existence. The metaphors used for the Christian life in Scripture are things like this. Battle, race, voyage, pilgrimage, conspicuously absent, picnic, (laughs) retirement, resort, tanning. It's none of that. Now, it's exciting, but it ain't easy. To continue to, if you make a decision, I am going to follow Jesus, and I'm going to follow in his steps the best I can, then you can expect to walk the same path he walked, which went to the cross. That that's the nature of what it means to follow God. But the good news is, he says, I will be with you, just like he was with Joseph. And Joseph goes, you guys intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Proverbs 24, 16 says this, for though the righteous fall seven times, they rise again. The wicked stumble when calamity strikes. There's a resilience to godliness. I mean, I could tell you horror stories from ministry, family life, personal life, youth, when I was a young kid or whatever, of struggles that, 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 that I mean, just con- obstacles all over the place. I wouldn't go back and remove any of them in hindsight. I mean, if you, those of you who are new to the church probably don't have a, a sense of this, but those of you who've been around a while know this church has been through its deals, man. I mean, the little, the little church that could, man, only by the power of God, end up where we are now. Hey, well, that took, you know, tons of just obstacles, and you can't, and it'll never happen, and no, and attacks from outside, attacks from inside, just boom, boom, boom. But when you, when you continue to walk one foot in front of the other, then, then God, when the time is right, okay, shows you, ah, ah, I get it. I mean, could it be that in our infancy as a church, for instance, part of the reason we got bumped around as much as we did, struggled as much as we did, is so that we would have enough stamina that when we got to the grand project plus construction, plus COVID, plus whatever, that we would be tough enough to kind of finish the thing? We became like a, a piece of jerky, you know? It's like you can beat on it all you want. Uh, but that's one tough group of people. So that hope wouldn't die because we'd already known that hope is kind of, it's found in Christ. You ain't going to find it much on the earth. You know, how about you? You go through your own journey. What you'll find is when those breakthroughs come, it's because you went through, you made your way through it, not out. We are responsible, sisters and brothers, for the faithfulness part. God is responsible for the results. Our job's obedience, his job's results. Uh, Lastly, Joseph says this uh, most amazing thing, God intends our lives for good. Um, Joseph says something all of us who have ever suffered at the hands of another person, I hope, will be able to say eventually. You intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying everything that happens on the earth is God's will. What I'm saying is, you know, you ever met one of those people that knows how to cook, like just using the strangest ingredients? It's like, my mom used to do this. She'd go to the fridge. Mom, what are you having for lunch? Ah, let me see. You'd open up the fridge and Inside, it's like, you know, milk and celery, cheese, bologna, 
cereal in the cupboard. And somehow, something good would be made. I don't know what it was, but, but it tasted good to me, to my young self. It fed me. It nourished me, right? And I didn't, you know, I could have never made anything out of those ingredients. But she had a way of doing it. You know, with all that stew your mom gave you or whatever, you have no idea what was in that stuff. It's like, whatever I got left, it's going in the pot, and here we go. You know, and that's how a lot of great things get made. The Reese's Peanut Butter Cup was made by peanut butter and chocolate coming together. And you take somebody with the broken pieces of life and watch how God takes that life. I mean, it was amazing to hear some of the stories that, that, were, that were told. During GLS, there was a, there was a woman, uh, they told a, of a specific story of her uh, coming to Christ after being trafficked just horribly for years. And then her coming to know the Lord and then her going into ministry and helping thousands of women get out of that life and encouraging them to help, help them see and meet the God who has a vision for their life when they have no vision for their life at all. So yes, whoever harmed her in the early intended it for evil, but God took it and worked it together for good. He's like a person who goes to a, to a refrigerator and opens it up. He goes, ooh, well, all right, let me get to work. And he gets going in his kitchen. What comes out on the other side? I mean, think about that. Joseph, in the journey he makes all the way until the promised land, and they get there, and they divvy up the land, they give extra to Ephraim, and Jacob died. He gave Joseph twice the land that the other brothers got. I guess that was a way of you know, doing something nice for Joseph after everything he'd been through. But he makes it all the way from there, all the way into the promised land, just like God wanted Let me encourage you with this. Author and speaker Bob Goff put it this way. He wrote, embrace uncertainty. Some of the most beautiful chapters of our lives won't have titles until later. I love the way he puts that. Some of the most beautiful chapters of our lives won't have titles until later. Um, Eugene Peterson translates Psalm 40, 16, and 17 this way. This is the way that I think a lot of us feel in moments where we're facing obstacles in life, we don't understand what's going on. He writes, he, he interprets the passage this way. He says, but all who are hunting for you, oh, let them sing and be happy. Let those who know what you're all about tell the world you're great and not quitting. And me, I'm a mess. <laughs> I'm nothing and I have nothing. Make something of me. Like, like, a, like a mom opening the fridge. You can do it. You've got what it takes, but God, don't put it off. That's the way to say, get on with it, please. I'm in pain here, right? I love the way he interprets that. He intends our lives for good. So whatever's going on right now, that doesn't mean the story is over. Sit around long enough. Be faithful long enough to let God open the door. See what's going on and start doing his magic thing. You never know what he's up to. There were moments in life, and Joseph is able to look back at his pain and see how God used it. And my prayer for you is that you're going to be able to do the same thing. Whether it pains now, whether it was in the past, or whether it's in the future. That when it's there, you know God is going to be faithful, and you don't know how. You just know he's going to get it done. And that if he declared it was going to be so, if he declared you were going to have the victory there, if he declares that we're going to heaven someday... That's where we're going next, by the way. This world is not our home. Egypt was not Joseph's real home. He, he acknowledges that. He goes, I don't, I don't want to bury, be buried here. I don't want to stay here. I'm glad God is using me to help feed people and save people, but this is not my home. This is not my home. And in the same way, it's not our home either. So Joseph asked the sons of Israel to bury him in the promised land, when they're delivered there. And again, roughly 430 years later, after years of slavery in Egypt, God takes somebody by the name of Moses, raises him up to deliver his people. And then through the wilderness experience, through all of that, through the battle of Jericho to finally enter the promised land, after Moses is already dead, he passes the bone baton, I guess, to, to Joshua, and he, he leads it forth. And that's what, what happens. And I think a lot of us still get caught in forgetting that this life is temporary. 
that this world is not our home. There, there was a whole boom in the hymn world, hymn writing world during the Depression. Because when your life here is miserable, you think about heaven a lot. <laughs> when, when, when heaven is not a threat to your standard of living, you think about heaven a lot. And so they're all, there's this boom of hymns in the 20s and 30s, people writing about heaven. And one of them, I can still hear my grandmother singing the alto line from a hymnal, green back, songs of the church, one of them dusty jobs that you open that thing up, you know, it's like poof, out comes the dust. Smells like a million dead skin cells from generations gone by. You know what I'm talking about. Go to your public library and pull Moby Dick off the shelf and don't do the same thing for you. Those hymnals, you're like, these are righteous hands have been holding this and people have been breathing on these books for a hundred years. Like that kind of stuff. The hymn goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Woohoo. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Sing his mercy and his grace. In the mansions, bright and blessed, he'll prepare for us a place. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. We'll sing and shout the victory. When the trumpet of the Lord shall sound, and time shall be no more. And the morning breaks eternal, bright and fair. When the saved of earth shall gather over on the other shore, and the roll is called up yonder, I'll be there. They wrote these songs, man. They had imagination. They, they fantasized about heaven. Like Joseph here goes, don't leave me here. Egypt was the paradise of the time. He says, I don't want no Egypt. I want the land that God promised my great-grandfather, the one that's our land, the land that we're supposed to be, have our citizenship in. And for us as Christians, that's heaven, folks. So, so, so when, when we go under the earth here, the promise remains that, okay, this is our Egypt. We're going to get buried here. But that someday our bones aren't going to stay here, that, that, that we're going to be given a new life, a new eternal life, and that there's another land for which we're supposed to be storing up treasures and not just getting caught close like this to, to, to our face and just going, you know, and it reminds me of that, you may have heard the story of that young couple, you know, it was their wedding night, they were all excited, so the wedding night, you know, they're nervous and excited and tired from the wedding, they, they go into the bridal suite, they open the door, I hope. Oh, well, it's, you know, it's all right. It's good. It's all right. So they look around and like, simple, but okay. We'll, we'll, we'll make it work. We'll make it work. There's a problem, though. There's no bed. They're looking around. They're going, where's the bed? So they start looking around. They open up the couch. Nothing in there. No hide-a-bed. Nothing. Finally, they realize there's a little string coming out of the wall. So they pull the string and bed comes down. You know what it's like to sleep on one of those kind of beds? It's miserable. If you've ever done it, bars in your back, saggy mattress, creaky. This is their wedding night, man. Now, of course, the groom's trying not to tip the bride off to be more miserable than she probably is internally. She's trying to not make him sorry that he married her by, like, weeping and gnashing teeth on the wedding night. And, and everything's there, oh, say, you know, that's great, honey. Oh, I'm just happy to be married to you. I don't care what the suite looks like. Internally, they're, <laughs> they're not feeling it. They go to bed, miserable night of sleep. They roll all over the place, whatever, terrible bed. They get up, they go, the guy goes to the front desk the next morning, he goes, hey, you know, look, after all the money we spent here, you'd think you could give us a decent room with a decent bed. That's your bridal suite? It's pathetic. The guy goes, what room are you in? He tells him, he goes, oh. Did you open the door? What do you mean? There's a door in the room. On the other side of that door is the bridal suite. So they had spent their wedding night in the living room of the suite that they were in on the hideaway when they had this big, beautiful, luxurious bridal suite on the other side of the door, right? Um, 
that is how I watch people, I think, go through life and how I feel sometimes. It's like, after everything I've done for you, this is the best you can do? If I'm one of your people, why am I always sleeping on the hideaway, man? I should, I should have a better bed than this. I shouldn't have to go through all that. I should have more security than that. How come I never feel safe? How come I never this? Where is my this? And then God might be saying, open the door, son. On the other side, what you're seeing right now is the living room. But on the other side of the door, what you might call, the hymns would call heaven's open door. There's something better there. You're not supposed to live in that room that appears so bad and shabby. That's why Paul and Silas can sing in prison later. Because physically they're in that room, but they know there's another room. Where you are right now, whether you think this is as good as it gets, it's not. It's not. It gets better. And when you have bad days on this earth, all that is is the, you know, um, all that is is the birth pang of what you are actually destined to do, and that is to live next to the right hand of your Savior who loved you enough that he gave himself for you. And in those mansions, bright and blessed, as they call them, that's a place of celebration of, that, that the, the scriptures would say where God wipes away every tear from every eye. One with no tombstones, no disease, no fear, no more need to endure, no more perseverance, no more grinding it out, no more resentment, no more hatred, no more polarization, no more depression, no more evil. And he says, that is what you're designed for. So I want to say before you and God today, don't bury me here, at least not for long. I may end up at Forest Lawn or Oak Hill Cemetery or wherever I end up dying, okay? I say before God, don't leave me here. <laughs> Take me where I'm supposed to be. When the time is right, when that horn blows, I want out of here. I want out. And while I'm here, while I'm here, Okay, have your way with me. Use me like you used Joseph. And I'm willing to try to, the best of my ability to live faithfully like Joseph. But our lives, okay, when, when, you, when, you, when you get caught in the circumstances you're in, you sometimes miss the end of the story. And you don't see the amazing ways in which God can finish that story. I want to introduce you to somebody. His name's Ellison Onizuka. Husband, father, astronaut. First Asian American ever to take flight. First Hawaiian too. He was half Asian and half Hawaiian. Celebrated astronaut. Loved to watch his girls play soccer. Helped coach their teams. So in fact, sometimes before his mission, he's supposed to be in quarantine and people would spot him like lurking over a car watching his daughters practice soccer. So the team loved him. Soccer team loved him at the local high school, Clear Lake High School in Houston. Well, when he was going to, he was getting ready for a very special mission. All the girls on the soccer team got a soccer ball, and they signed it for him. And they said, good luck, shuttle crew. And they all signed it. They all signed their names. And he went into quarantine, took that soccer ball with him, put it in a duffel bag, took that soccer ball with him for the mission. It's all loaded up on the space shuttle. January 28th, 1986, around 8.30 in the morning, here on the West Coast, his daughters and his wife were with all the other families of the astronauts. Everybody was going to watch the space shuttle Challenger going to the air. So, Ellison Onizuka, every, every kid in America was watching this on television. I was probably in seventh grade when it happened. Uh, and the reason was, the first school teacher was going into outer space as an astronaut. Her name was Krista McAuliffe. 
So everybody excitedly geared to the TV. Every kid in school anywhere in the United States watching it on television live. His daughters, his wife, and then something goes wrong, they take off. It was cold that morning. The O-ring froze and shattered, ruptured, causing a malfunction, and the Challenger exploded in front of everybody. So you'll never forget this. If you saw it live, you'll never forget it. I remember being, uh, I guess, 11 years old, you know, and then President Reagan coming on the TV maybe 10 minutes later, addressing all the kids that had watched all this on television, and his daughters and, and his wife. You know, I want you to picture what that was like. Unbelievably tragic for the, for the nation, very traumatic. 14,000 tons, or 14,000 tons of debris landed in the ocean. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. Um, they go through, it's the largest ocean recovery mission ever of debris. Covers hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. They go through, they don't find much personal effects. One of the few things they do find happens to be a duffel bag. Inside the duffel bag, there's a soccer ball. They pull the soccer ball out, pretty much intact. You can still read the signatures on it, as you see on the right. That's it, about uh, two years ago. Good luck, shuttle crew. So they present this back to the wife and the daughters. The wife's trying to figure out what to do with it. She says, you know what? I think the best place for it is at the high school. So she gives it back to Clear Lake High School. They take the ball. They put it in a display case along with the, the other trophies that the school has won over the years. And there it sits for 30 years. There's no little plaque or anything. They just put the ball like right next to the fourth place trophy from the badminton team or whatever. It's right there. Nobody even knows the significance of the ball. Well, one day, this is in like 2016 or so, somebody is walking out of a staff meeting. They happen to walk by the trophy case and just start looking. They notice the ball, and they notice the good luck shuttle crew thing on it. And they start thinking back, and they start, oh, I wonder if that's that soccer ball that he was taking with him into space. They start asking questions. They go to the new principal, who was not re there when the, when, the, when the Challenger explosion happened, and, and tells the principal, I think that's the ball. Principal's mortified and excited at the same time, mortified that she didn't know, excited that she has this treasure, and so now they go, okay, what should we do with this now that we know we have it? And so they decide at first they're going to build a, its own display case, make it its own big thing. But as they're making plans for that, there's a basketball game. She goes into the basketball game and runs into a neighbor. His name's Sean. He's an astronaut. He's got a mission coming up in a couple of weeks. Going to what's called the International Space Station. And so she thinks to herself, she goes, I wonder if he would take it with him in space. So she asks him, and of course, he's all over it. He's like, that would be awesome. And so he takes the ball. Off they go into outer space. Successful mission. Um, the ball spends 173 days in space on board the International Space Station. Orbits the Earth 3,000 times. Passing auroras and constellations and Wonders of the ancient world, sprawling cities of the modern. On April 10th, 2017, it returns to Earth, mission completed. So he takes the ball, and by the way, he photographs it in outer space. Here's the ball uh, there as they're going around. <laughs> and so when they're done, it's uh, obviously gravity-free in there, so the ball's just floating at the top, and he's snapping pictures, Sean is. He sends the pictures down so the family can enjoy them. And so he gets back with the ball. He presents it to the family again. The family then takes it back to Clear Lake High School, and they finally put it at its final resting place, that, that display case. Okay. Now, when I heard this story, I go, <laughs> I go, you know what? It sounds a lot like a lot of lives I know, where it's like, they start off sentimental and, and with all the hope in the world, all the excitement, and then tragedy strikes, 
and then it's like one day God kind of discovers them again or finds them again. And, and then it's about like them recovering that, 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 that purpose in their life. And then they manage to, God helps them put their lives back together and then they achieve things that they never could have known before. And then they circle, it all comes full circle again. It reminds me of like the life of Joseph, right? He's dad's favorite son. And then bang, 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 bang. All the way through, tragedy strikes. And then all the way down to the end, and they put his, put his bones in the ground right there in the promised land. You pick up a passport, any passport, U.S. passport, it has a quote from Ellison Onizuka inside. He writes this, Every generation has the obligation to free men's minds for a look at new worlds, to look out from a higher plateau than the last generation. Your vision is not limited by what your eye can see, but what your mind can imagine. I think Scripture would aim at this and add this to it. You're not limited by what you can see, okay, but by your faith, what you believe. So my appeal to you today, and we're going to gather around the Lord's table, um, if you want to be able to know and experience the grace of God, and what it looks like, and to see a great example of what it looks like, when it looks like tragedy is going to get the last word, look to the cross of Jesus, where everybody thought, okay, now it's over. The one that God sent, his favorite son, is gone. He's, he's done. Satan hissed and yelped for joy, and yet God knew what was about to happen. So we don't turn the movie off halfway through. And by the way, we have some ushers coming with the elements. If, if you didn't get a bread and cup on the, on the way in, go ahead and grab it. We have them in bags to health and safety concerns, but I want you to know uh, whatever's going on in your life, walk in the promises of God, not in your circumstances. Your circumstances will change. Your circumstances will go up and down, but the promises of God never fail. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the testimony of a great life in Joseph. We're thankful for those who have walked faithfully, for the people who've written the hymns of old and the hymns of new. And, and talked about your faithfulness, Lord. May we be those whose lives and voices testify to your greatness, not letting our circumstances tyrannize us, but letting them catalyze us, Father, in, into faithfulness. Lord, today, if, we're, if people are feeling down or tragic or overwhelmed or fearful, I ask, Father, for victory over that, that you give them the strength they need to be faithful as they walk through it and not out of it, Father, that we all might come back together soon and celebrate the great things you have done. We love you, Lord. We celebrate now Jesus Christ, body and blood. It's in his name we pray. Amen.